good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with Stephanie Burke and Lauren Allison. Good evening, ladies. How are you? Good. Good. And uh, I didn't... All right, now you can now you can talk. I turned your microphone I on. I said good. <laughs> and uh, welcome to the program where we talk about the paranormal, as we do each and every Saturday night. And of course, the Red Sox have us starting a little bit late, but don't worry, it'll all be over soon. Uh, what do we have, like another month and a half of the season, and then... October will be all ours. The only problem is we're going to be all over the place in October. Yeah, it never works out where we're here, so. Well, normally we are here, but we're waiting for the Red Sox to get over because they're in the, the playoffs. But well, that's this a good year, thing in my eyes. you know, we're like, well, maybe the Red Sox will make the playoffs. We start booking all kinds of things, and now look where we're at. So, that's okay. But it'll be a great time, and we are going to do some pre-recorded shows that will air in our place in October, so. There will be spooky South Coast content, and it will be fresh. We're not going to record them now and sit on them for two months. Good. You know, I'm it, excited for that. But there's going to be, I, I can show you my calendar. Like, I'm almost like reaching Jeff Belanger proportions of how are busy you? I'm going to be. There's one week where I'm out of the house every night in October. So are we still going to be friends? or? Well, are you going to follow me around and show up at other library lectures I'm and everything? I'm going to have to. Yeah, you're going to have to. I need at least one person in the audience. I can be the official Tim Weisberg groupie. I'll, we already have a few of those. I know you do. I can make a sign. You guys could all band together, get T-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> get Listen, T-shirts made up. Speaking yeah. of T-shirts, I'm uh, I'm displaying this P3 Paranormal. You are. Uh, I was going to ask about it. Well, my friend Bill Prince gave me this. Bill and Karen, they run P3 Paranormal, and I want to thank fancy. them for the shirt. And I always say to anybody out there, if you run a paranormal group and you want to send a T-shirt or a hat or something like that, you know, I know that you've all got the gear that you use to promote your teams. We don't really promote teams here on the show. We used to do that a long time ago when there was like five or six teams to promote. Now there's five or six hundred teams to promote. So in the interest of fairness and because the audience doesn't want to hear us just basically interviewing paranormal group after paranormal group every week talking Mm -hmm. about their experiences, as a way to kind of fix that a little bit, we've always said, send us your gear. Send us a hat. Send us a T-shirt, whatever. And one of us will put it on during the show, and that'll be kind of like a little bit of an advertisement for you in that way. Because we don't want to act like we don't support the groups. Right. We just can't give airtime to them because how do you say yes to one and, and not to the other? And how do you do it in a way that it stays entertaining? Now, sometimes you might hear us bring a group or an investigator on because they can talk about a particular case or a particular topic. And I think that works out great. But if, in terms of just like, there, there were shows that we did back in the early days. And Stephanie, you used to listen back then when you were right. you know, just sitting at home listening to, on your radio. When I wasn't cool. <laughs> and you were, you would hear that we would be introducing, you know, and we'd say to the group, tell us about some of your cases. Tell us about some of your best evidence. Play mm-hmm. some of your best EVPs. And it just, it didn't, it, it didn't resonate with the audience as much. So. No, it kind of gets cookie cutter and old. Right. And not that, don't want to listen to it. Not that what happens to them isn't profound to them. But right. just when the same groups are telling the same stories over and over again. I think an, an issue that people have, too, while listening at home or maybe even us in the studio is if you're not there to experience it, it almost doesn't hit you as hard, I right. guess, as if you actually are there. I mean, we've had amazing EVPs, and we've played them for other people, and they're totally not impressed because they weren't there to experience it. So right. people just need to be that person to see it to believe it so but we will get in depth like when we're talking about a legend trips event because you know that's something that people can come and be part of right so it's it's not like it's like 25 people there listening to the same thing that you did so it's definitely a different experience right so we'll mean again if any groups want to send anything our way we'll be sure you know even if it's a bumper sticker or whatever Mm -hmm. you know send it to the station here you can get the address from wbsm.com and uh, mail it here to the attention of, of me or spooky south coast and 
we'll make sure that we uh, we pimp it out so as best we can. And uh, I know it's not it's not advertising, so it's not because they're you know these people aren't making a profit off what they're doing. Right. So it's uh, it's just a way to help spread the word and show support for the community. Now tonight on the show we're, we're going to have an abbreviated version, of course, but uh, we will have joining us Jerry Orzel and Karen Polson. They are the writer. Karen's the writer, and uh, Jerry is the co-writer and director of a new film coming out called Defending Lizzie. Now, this movie was, uh, it's been in the works for a little while. It's based on Karen's play that she wrote that debuted, I think, in 2013. And they're going to make a film version of it. Their plan is to come here and film, they're from Florida. They're going to come here and film at the Lizzie Borden house if they can raise enough funds. And we'll talk to them about that a little bit uh, coming up during the interview, but this would be the first ever film to really f- to film in that house and to try to portray this in the most accurate historical light. Now, a friend of mine, Faye Musselman, who's a very big Borden scholar, has been supporting this project. The Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast is supporting this project. So we're going to do all we can to help throw some support their way as well and, and make it so they can come up. What do you think? If that happens, if we help, should I push for a part in the movie? Of course. Who do you, who do you think I could be? Mm. I don't know. I think I should just be an extra in the background. Well, you could be an extra and then pretend that you're famous. That's. I'm going to just sit there in the background. <laughs> You'll recognize me from my Victorian-era beard that I will have going in the background, and I'll be wearing this P3 Paranormal t-shirt. You could go for no, I don't think know, so, like no. a, a John Morris-type role. I think that's a little bit bigger. I think they have somebody already in mind for that. I, I, maybe. I, maybe I could be like the... the um, the Rob Schneider cameo. You can do it, Lizzie. Stab them with the edges. <laughs> you know, that might be kind of funny. <sighs> we'll see if we can work that in. I'll ask them. Uh, but we'll talk to them coming up in the next hour. Uh, Lauren, looking at the clock, I, I hate to tell you this, we might have to bump your week and weird to next week. That's okay. I'm, I'm a little sad. but I know. We'll see if we can figure it out. We'll, we'll try and squeeze it in before the end of the show. But I was like, oh, my gosh, there's already only seven minutes left in this hour. Uh, and I do want to talk about what happened last week on our Legend Trips event at Slater Mill because... Uh, a lot of people have been asking me all week long on social media, like, what happened? Did anything go on? And I'm like, well, we'll talk about it on the show, or you can read my blog on WBSM.com, which actually has some video, because Stephanie got me going on the Periscope. See. And when, you. when she was telling me about it, I was like, well, that might be a cool thing to use at Legend Trips events, because we can give people a little taste of what goes on at the events. Now, I talked to all the people that were in the groups before I streamed it because I wanted to let them know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make sure that they felt like it was fair because they paid to be there. Right. So if they're paying to be there, they shouldn't be able to experience it and then also have somebody else experience it for free by watching on their computer. But everybody said the same thing. They all said, well, we're the ones that are here right. actually physically experiencing it. They're just watching. So It's just a little clip. It's not like the entire experience. It's not like you're periscoping the start to the end. Right. It's just little bits. And so what I did is I, I would take little bits and pieces of each group that came through if I, if I could get the signal to do it. And uh, so the first couple groups came through. Uh, I was in the Sylvanus Brown House all night, which is uh, I believe it was built in 1858, if I have my dates right. And it it's, was moved to the property in the 1960s. So it was actually the house where Samuel Slater spent his first nights in Rhode Island when he came to build his mill. And so I'm in the house, and I'm in – now this house has – Three floors. The kitchen is like in a like a basement type level, and then there's the main level, and then there's the upstairs with the bedrooms that you can't go into because the floor is not safe, so they have that blocked off. Uh, but I was in the main level, and Moniz was in the basement. Mm-hmm. And normally there's a staircase that connects the two, 
but they've shut that down because the stairs aren't aren't safe. So we, you have to walk out of the building and go around to the back door down a hill to be able to get into the kitchen. So I said, Moniz, you stay down there. I'll stay in the main part. At one point, they were conducting Ouija board sessions directly on top of each other without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. And both were communicating with the spirit of Becca, who's a little girl that's said to, to haunt the house. So they're doing their thing there. We're running Echo Vox and, and numerous other uh, pieces of equipment. And I'm capturing little bits and pieces of this on Periscope and putting it out there. And, you know, if you're if it's just a quick glimpse into the moment, it's hard to really understand what's going on. Right. So you kind of just see little bits and pieces of it. So I was like, well, maybe at some point I'll you know, stream an entire segment of something. So the last group of the night, they come up into my area. And we're running on this table. We have two K2 meters. We have a Geophone app. Not the actual physical Geophone, but the app. Uh, we have the Echovox app running. And a REM pod. Mm-hmm. which is a device that, you know, basically all of these uh, devices, the K2, the REM pod, they're measuring electromagnetic field, and those fluctuations are represented by a light. And the REM pod has four different lights on it. The K2 has, I think, what, five or six different lights that light up depending on the intensity of the EMF. And so we're communicating with something that's there, coming through on the echo box, which allows it to use words and say from this phonetic sound bank, say different words, and it's talking about being a ghost, talking about being a spirit. Uh, we asked if it's Becca. It said no. So there's the whole video is uploaded on WBSM.com under the blog, and I'll tweet it out during the show. But as we're asking the questions, the lights are giving us responses, too, mm-hmm. on the different devices. And so at one point, they were like, can you light this K2 meter up all the way? And it did. I said, well, if that was you, there's two K2 meters on the table. Can you light them both up all the way? <laughs> And right after I said it, it lit both of them up all the way. And then the REM pod sitting there on the table, and, and I said, uh, if you're a man, can you light up the green light on that device? And as soon as I said it, the green light lit up. Mm-hmm. And then I said, all right, well, if you're a woman, can you light one of the other colored lights? And we named the other colors, nothing happened. And I said, well, if you're a man, can you light that green light up again? And it, it instantaneously lit the green light up again. It was like nothing I've ever experienced with any of those devices before. So, I mean, I think some sometimes... In that case, devices definitely do help. Um, I remember being on an investigation at one point and dealing with, you know, the, the flashlight trick that everybody tries to discourage. And Sure. I don't know if it works. I don't know if, you know, I can see the scientific part and I can see the part that it, it might work. But I had, you know, K2 ghost meters go off at the exact same time as the flashlight on purpose multiple times in a row after I asked and saying please always helps like I told you. Yeah, well you were watching on mm-hmm. on Periscope saying say please and uh, and it worked it did make a difference. So well we will certainly uh, again I'll tweet that out during the news break if you want to catch it uh, just follow us on Twitter at SpookySC or follow the station at WBSM1420 and uh, you can see the video for yourself. It's about 27 minutes but the part that I'm talking about where uh, I mentioned the lights going off the, on the REM pod, that's at 17 minutes. So if you don't want to watch the whole thing, you can jump in right there. But, I mean, it's kind of cool to be able to upload those afterwards. It doesn't make any sense when I'm talking to the words that are coming up on the screen that mm-hmm. no longer show up on the YouTube video. But, you know, you'll get the kind of the general gist. And to let everybody know, if you want to join us on one of these events, we just announced a new one coming up. It'll be our first ever Friday night event. And it's happening September 18th aboard the USS Salem in Quincy. Because they do so much work with the Boy Scouts, we can't get a Saturday night. 
because that's when they do the overnights with the kids. Mm-hmm. So we said, all right, we'll try a Friday night event. So we have that on sale now if you go to legendtrips.com. And, uh, of course, all of our events help raise money to benefit these historic haunts. And we've raised over $26,000 now. That's awesome. So this the wow. Slater Mill put us up that's over that. So. Uh, hopefully by the end of this year, maybe we can hit that $30,000 mark if we can get a few more events booked. I think so. And speaking of more things booked, people have been asking if we were going to do the stage show again, an evening of ghost stories and New England legends. And we are. We've known this for a little while, but it's just been announced. October 29th at the Stadium Theater in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. If you go to the website stadiumtheater.com, then you'll be able to actually purchase the tickets there. You have to get them through them, and there are different prices for depending on where you decide to sit. Uh, but there are still some good seats available. So if you go to stadiumtheater.com, you can get your tickets for an evening of ghost stories and New England legends. A lot of people asking me, are they going to be the same stories? We're yeah. going to bring some new stories into this. Some of them will be, you know, the same. You know, when you go see your favorite band, they always play some of the greatest hits. Right. We'll play some of our greatest hits. Don't I know that? And we'll also have, well, yeah, you know. <laughs> and so we'll also have uh, some new stories to share as well. So definitely uh, come on board with that. We look forward to seeing everybody. At those great events, and plus something that I'm very close, we're probably about a couple weeks away from being able to announce a local event right here that we'll be doing through the station where you can get your hands dirty and do some ghost hunting. All right, well, we are coming up on the news. When we come back on the other side, we'll be joined by Jerry Orzel and Karen Paulson to talk about the new movie Defending Lizzie. We'll get into the nuts and bolts of the Lizzie Borden case and why they don't think she did it, and we'll take your calls as well. Stay tuned for more Spooky self Number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg, along with Stephanie Burke and Lauren Allison. And it is time to talk with our guests for tonight. Uh, again, an abbreviated show due to the Red Sox. We'll have a lot to cover with them, and we'll try and get to as much of it as we can. But joining us on the line, we have Karen Paulson and Jerry Orzel. Uh, they are the writer and the director and co-writer of the new film, Defending Lizzie, which is uh, currently raising the funds to be able to be put into production. And now they're joining us here on the week of the 123rd anniversary of the Borden murders. It was uh, on August 4th. It was the 123rd anniversary. So, uh, Karen, good evening. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Great. How are you? Uh, we are spooktacular, as we say here. And <laughs> now we'll bring in Jerry as well. Good evening, Jerry. How are you? Oh, I think I... Cut him off when I tried to put him in there. I'm here. I'm here. No, I cut off. I cut off uh, Karen because I did not put her into the VIP uh, hold. But I will. I'll send her a quick message. See if she can. <laughs> and uh, that's it, Tim. <laughs> breaking down that fourth wall. Here I am trying to do everything. Uh, we're not lucky enough to have a producer here that can do all that stuff for us. <laughs> we need Someday. to. We need to do our own uh, fundraising campaign, Jerry. Yes. <laughs> You're right. So now this is, uh, of course, the week of the 123rd uh, anniversary of the Borden murders, and it's getting a lot of attention. The Maplecroft House was recently sold, and that has become uh, a new venture that will soon be allowing people in, I believe, is, uh, is Christie's plan for that. Uh, so it's going to be, you know, all Lizzie all the time down here, uh, up here in Fall River, but you guys are down in Florida, right? Right, Central Florida, uh, they're going to be area. So now, 
you know, up here where we broadcast ten miles away from from the house where it happened. Up here, there's a very strong Lizzie Borden culture, but is, is it something that's talked about a lot down down that way? Um, not that I'm aware of. Uh, Karen knows she's kind of like I guess the touch of Florida Lizzie guru. I, I think everybody knows the nursery rhyme, or if you mention Lizzie Borden's name, they they know of her. Um, I think every state or every region in the country has their own folklore or legend that kind of solidifies that area. But in Florida, I'm not too sure exactly what it is. I mean, your background, how did how did you get started in, in film? Um, I, I, when I was in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was getting ready to graduate. So I took a year off, and I kind of worked and kind of played the field. And I didn't want to have a desk job. I didn't want to wear a tie. And I was always into, I was always creative, whether it was with painting or telling stories or writing, and I think going into the visual aspect of the filmmaking kind of put all those elements together, and I just have a, I just love movies, I love all types of movies, animation, I just, just dig it, totally dig it. And so, uh, we, there's stuff that you've done that we could, uh, that we, we might have seen? Nothing major, it's, a lot of it's like short films, I did a full feature horror film a couple years back, uh, Revelations 2222. It was a uh, zombie movie that I did right out of college. Um, a lot of freelance stuff, did some commercial contests, uh, nothing nothing major. But I think Defending Lizzie would probably would be, I guess you can call it my breakout film, if we can actually get in the house and get the funding needed to get this produced. Um, it's something totally different that hasn't been done before. And I believe now that we have uh, Karen with us. Karen, you there? Yes, I'm back. Uh, the magic of technology. See, it's way easier to make movies than it is to actually produce a radio show. I'm pretty no, convinced no. of that. I'll challenge you on that. <laughs> so now uh, we were talking uh, a little bit about Jerry's background, Karen, but you actually got involved in the Lizzie story pretty early on in your life. Yes, I was in college, and I was watching the Lizzie Borden, Legend of Lizzie Borden, and it really scared me. So I had to learn more about it, obviously. It's definitely one of the most notorious TV movies ever, isn't it? I love it. I could watch it over and over. <laughs> so that led you down the path of wanting to research more about the case? Yes, and uh, of course, you know, there's so many opposing theories out there, and I've always been on the uh, Lizzie Didn't Do It side. <laughs> well, well, what made you, in, in your research, what made you uh, feel that way? Or was it just kind of a gut reaction to the story? I think it's the first book I really read, Agnes DeMille's uh, Dance of Death. There was an interview when Lizzie was, had been in jail about five months, and she was proclaiming her innocence, and it, it was just very believable. I felt sorry for her. So you found it through the TV movie, and I had and asked Jerry before when, uh, when I had accidentally disconnected you, but... <laughs> You know, I was saying that up here in, in southeastern Massachusetts, we're 10 miles away from the house, and if that, and, th you know, this is a place where Lizzie Borden is discussed all the time, but down there, uh, you, it must have been very hard for you to find resources and, and find people to talk to in, in discussing the Lizzie Borden case. Well, in finding the resources, I was pretty lucky because with the library system, we have the interlibrary loan, and I had gotten Len Rebello's book. It was a signed copy, and we got a lot of books from up, right up by you. And I was able to do a lot of research and then found different people online. The resources were really just starting then. I had one of the old transcripts 
like in its original form before everybody retyped it out. Mm-hmm. So that was a little hard, but I've made about four or five trips up to Fall River, and I got a lot of information from the Historical Society and the Bed and Breakfast and did research up there in the archives also in the Historical Society basement. So and, it's out there. you just got to dig. And you started to put this together originally. Uh, this was a, a stage play. We premiered it October thirteenth, October twenty fifth, two thousand thirteen. And uh, I can imagine that you know it probably like anything Lizzie Borden related. You know I've seen other shows and and other lectures and different things that have happened. It draws a crowd. People want to learn more about this case and they want to learn all the nuances about this case. Yes, we had sold out crowds. We had people right from your town there in New Bedford. We had just it was very popular. We could have gone another week, I'm sure. Wow. So now, Jerry, you're, did you get a chance to see the, the, the stage show? Yeah. Um, actually, how I got involved in this is Karen, I was a freelance videographer, and she gave me a call. We've been friends for a long time. My wife and her and her husband have acted for years together. So she gave me a call and asked me to videotape the show for her and the cast. I was like, yeah, no problem. So I was, as I was sitting there watching it, usually when I videotape a show, I'm just kind of watching my gear. At that point, during the show, there was some point during the show, I started watching the show. And all the wheels start spinning, and I was like, after the show, ran down the car, and I was like, go home, write it, uh, expand on it, blow this thing up, let's get to the house, let's, let's find different locations. Because you're limited on stage to what you can do with characters and locations and the overall production. Um, and, you know, and knowing Karen for as long as we have, I know there was no issue with, with rights and all that stuff, so we just start meeting together and knocking out some ideas and, and, and really expanding the script. Because it, it seems to me, and I've never understood this, and, and I know that you folks have become friendly with Faye Musselman, uh, a Borden scholar who you know we've had on the show here in the past and, and is a good friend of mine, and we talked about it, her and I, about how we don't understand why there can never be an accurate portrayal in the media of the Lizzie Borden story because the actual facts are so sensational enough that you don't need to add in all these other elements. But it seems like every time uh, somebody decides to present the story, obviously the Christina Ritchie Lifetime movies being the most recent, but every time somebody decides to tell the story, they have to add some sort of a twist and, and take some sort of an artistic license. And, and Karen, you've been outright in saying that you do take a little bit of artistic license in the script for this, but, but not in messing around with the actual historical facts. I, I did get a lot of information from Faith now that you mention it, um, she's, she's a wonderful resource, and I've always felt protected of the whole Lizzie story. Of course, you know, there is that entertainment value, so you do have to add a little bit. And it's gone through several rewrites from the very beginning, from when I first started researching it, gotten really deep into the research in, around 2000, the year 2000, spent about a year researching it. So over the years, there's this been many changes and then of course with the movie the screenplay there's been jerry and i we discussed like eight drafts before settling on the one we have now and when you are putting all that together and and you're reading through all the different facets of this you know you can kind of already envision in your head as you're doing this research exactly how you want to tell this story and exactly how you want to portray uh, especially the character of Lizzie, what what type of characterization was uh, forming in your mind about who she was as a person? Well, there are there's the stereotypical Lizzie, but then there's so much in her past underneath that that we need to 
get through. And I originally, my original script had her at basically two years old. So it was just watching her growing up. We didn't have room for all that in the final, but what comes out of that Lizzie is, comes from her youth. It, yeah, it seems like she's portrayed as as a very, uh, you know, a very cold blooded, disconnected person in a lot of the the stories that you hear. And uh, I, I I don't know if I'm sure you've had a chance to read uh, Michael Martin's and Dennis Bennett's book, um, Parallel Lives. Wonderful. And that, that really shows you who she was and what the city was like. Well, that's that's what I enjoyed about that book is it wasn't just about Lizzie. Obviously, it was about the people surrounding her, and unless you have that full story, you can't tell a good one. You can't know how Lizzie interacted with everyone or how people of that time period would have interacted. Um, we're very lucky to have Valerie playing the part, and she's able to bring both sides. She's got a very soft nature to her naturally, so she brings that other part of Lizzie, interacting with different people and a, a younger character and... I really enjoyed watching her. So, Jerry, as as a director and as a filmmaker, when you're seeing the characterizations uh, that's coming up uh, in in Karen's writing and also in the performances of the actors uh, involved, are you seeing a chance uh, from your own perspective of being able to tell the human side of who these people were and make them more than just characters in the story and actually give them depth? Yeah, I mean that, that my, that's my big focus is is telling the story through, through using the characters um, as, as the main drive to tell the story. Uh, like you mentioned, the, the different portrayals of Lizzie have always been you know spoiled little brat, cold blooded murderer, and, and there is another side to her. And in, in this version of the Borden story, we do see the other side of her. You know, ninety nine percent of the people going into seeing this movie, if it gets produced. Is they're automatically going to assume that Lizzie is guilty. Um, I don't want to give away whether she is or isn't in defending Lizzie, but we show enough of her soft side and enough of the bratty side to kind of really make you think twice. Did she do it? Could she do it? And all the other characters are fleshed out to set them up as characters, as, as suspects as well. Um, with, this, with the story taking place prior to the murders, leading up to the murders, Everyone is a suspect. We're kind of going back to the old Hitchcock style of filmmaking. Um, we don't have any major special effects. There's no big movie stars in this. It's just a solid story um, being told with solid actors. And and that's a story, though, that comes with a lot of expectations and a lot of criticisms. Uh, obviously, with, with Karen doing all the research as well, but Jerry, with the visuals, I mean, you're you're talking about a, a, a fan base, we'll call it, for the for the all things Borden that are going to nitpick every little detail. They're going to say, no, Lizzie wasn't wearing that color dress that day, or you know, the sash on the windows was was tied this way and not that way. I mean, it must be really a daunting task to try to be as historically accurate as you can, which is why. I know you're trying to raise the funds to come up here and actually film it in the house. Right, right. That's a big challenge. And as me as a director, I think any filmmaker, it, the story is, is only half of it. The other half is the details. It is how their hair is, is cut and the type of makeup they wore, if they wore any at all. Um, there were so many different classifications of um, wealth in that era that they, they dressed you know, in those classifications. I, I think to try to really nail every single detail down is going to be hard. I mean, Hollywood even has a problem with it. In Titanic, they were getting called out for the 
the type of stars that were in the sky when the when the Titanic was sinking. I mean, <laughs> right. you can really tear it apart. Um, I think for the most part, the, the main goal is to shoot in in the Borden house. Um, to, for me, a, a personal goal was to, to be at the first production to be in the house, making a movie about Lizzie Borden in loca- on location would just be phenomenal. Uh, the house is already dressed. It is the house. You can't find. You couldn't make a better location. I don't. Right. I don't care. You know who you are, how much money you got. You cannot do that. So we're doing the best we can. We have a very talented um, wardrobe department, and again, with all the research that Karen has done, and there's there's enough photos and enough stuff out there, we can lock down the detail that we can get. And of course, you can have the naysayers. You're gonna have people picking it apart, and that's fine because my goal as a filmmaker is. If I can get an emotion out of you, whether you loved it or hated it or laughed or cried, I felt I did my job. <clears throat> well, and it will help to when Leanne has already put in all the work and effort in recreating exactly the way the house looked on the day of the murders, and to have mm-hmm. that type of um, that type of just. It's not even just a matter of it looking that way. It's the fact that when you walk into the house, you already have that feel, like you're stepping back onto uh, what, what it looked like on August fourth, eighteen ninety two. So it's there's going to be an atmosphere around the entire production if you get the chance right. to film there. It's going to, it's going to carry through and it's going to help affect everybody's performances and it's going to lend so much more authenticity automatically uh, just from the way that it'll feel. And now I know that, Karen, you said you've been to the house. Jerry, you've never had the chance to come up here? No, not yet. I plan on making a trip up there before um, production, obviously, to hash up the details with the homeowner or the, you know, the bed and breakfast owners and, you know, shake hands and kiss babies of, of, of the people of Fall River because I want the community of Fall River to be involved in this as well. Um, it's not only just using the house, it's actually using the community itself. Fall River is the backdrop of defending Lizzie. So if we can find some streets that work or smaller parts of, of Fall River, like the you know the area up near the hill that we can shoot some exterior shots on, Jennings House, um, whatever, as much as I can get of Fall River on screen, that's what, I'm, that's what my major goal is. And one of the, well, I was going to say too, one of the advantages of is you, it, it, there's such a Lizzie subculture uh, that's up here that you'll have people that'll be coming out of the woodwork to uh, lend you things that you can use in the production. You know, people that will have Victorian era clothing say, here, you can borrow this. I know, I know that you have a costume maker, but here, if you want to use this, right. and, you know, the people here are so invested in the story, they'll want to make sure that you're telling it the right way. They've seen the story bastardized enough that they'll be happy and, and proud to support people that are doing it the correct way and, and telling an accurate story. Right, and I'm I'm from Pittsburgh. So when George Romero mentioned that he's doing a zombie film, the zombies and the fans come out of the woodwork. So I kind of have an idea of what it would be like getting back up into Fall River because I've been up there a couple times when Romero was doing a film or a short, and the amount of people that just come out and show support for that type of genre or you know that that filmmaker is pretty cool. And and I'm sorry, Karen, you were saying? Oh, uh, we've always had that in mind using people from up there. The funny thing was, the last time I stayed there, I kept in touch with a couple that was staying there at the same time, and they want to be involved, and they didn't know anything about Lizzie before they went there. And we have other people that have been following this all along that want to be a part, but we actually really do keep in mind the people who follow Lizzie and what they will think of this, and we want to make it right for them. 
Excellent. Well, and I think that if people want to support this, uh, they can go to your website, DefendingLizzie.com. They have the information up there about the campaign that people can help support the film and, and some of the different rewards they can earn by doing that. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. a, it's a great site to go to to be able to uh, find out everything about the production. Again, it's DefendingLizzie.com. And, uh, Karen, when you were putting together the original stage show and you were creating these characterizations of the different people involved in this story obviously you know you want to tell an accurate story of who lizzie was and you want to try to give her more humanity than may be presented in some of the other stories about her but how did you approach the relationship between andrew and abby and lizzie and emma how did you approach the dynamic of what that household was like back on august 4th 1892 back on august 4th 1892 would have been different from the way that I started telling it earlier, as I said, with the younger characters, Lizzie and Emma grown up, and then Andrew before Abby came into the picture. I even had, I had Sarah in, in the picture. I had about 25 people, so I, I really tried to involve, as I said, the community, the people that touched Lizzie, but I, I did uh, pretty much go with the way that people always picture them, Andrew and, and uh, Abby, the whole family dynamic, I did go with that. But there was also a softer side to Abby and Lizzie in the younger years, like when she was about eight years old in the original Defending Lizzie. And uh, I, I think that when I started reading the story, when I first started researching it, I had made up my mind in my head of who I thought Andrew Borden was, based on a lot of the stories that I've heard. And in further research, you know, you as you're reading more of these books, which I know that you've read pretty much all of them, and as you're reading these, you realize that there was a, a strong relationship between him and his daughters, that there was, there's probably a lot of underlying issues that come from from Sarah's death and that come from the emergence of Abby in the household there's probably a lot of things that you know in our modern era we would have gone to a you know family psychotherapist and I'll talked about but back then they didn't have that and so instead they have all these emotions that are stewing and brewing uh on the undercurrent of everything that was going on from a financial basis in 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 your story and I don't you don't want to give away too much of of the movie uh that you have planned but what, I mean, how do you portray that relationship going south, or did it not go south in the way that you're telling the story? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, because it, that's the thing to me. It I mean, went if, south. Yeah, it did go south, but um, the other characters play such a big part in it, too. Emma plays a big part. We also have uh, Curtis I. Peace which no one has had his character, right. uh, Bridget, like they all play a part in it. So, not just, so it's, it's a whole family dynamic, not just, say, Lizzie and Abby. And I suppose the million-dollar question, and, and if you don't want to get into the specifics of, of anything, and you want to just tease it, but the million-dollar question would be, if not Lizzie, then who? And is that something that you ad- address in, in the script? We do address that. <laughs> so you, you want to leave it out there as a tease, or do you want to get a little more in depth? No, there's definitely there is a a someone that the, that that is guilty. Um, it, it comes out at the end. It, uh, yeah, we can't really get too much away, but it, there is definitely the mystery is solved, so to speak, from 
an artistic license point of view. We'll just leave it at that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, that's what, that's what hooked me is, you know, watching the show and, and, and she, she painted, Karen painted every, every character had a motive. Every character was, is painted as a suspect. And it's kind of like the original screen where you see somebody, they come on, they come on the screen and they, they say something or they do something. It's like, that's kind of weird. You know, maybe, maybe he did it. Maybe, maybe, he could do it, but then another screen, he kind of proves himself innocent or proves herself innocent. It keeps going back and forth. So there's definitely a roller coaster ride of emotions and um, could do it and can't do it uh, intervals in, in the story. So by the time you get to the end, it's like you don't know what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right, because there's so much that's happened prior to the to the murders that when it is revealed who the murder is, you're like, ah, you know, one of those moments. So. And, I mean, obviously there's been, the, the Lizzie story has been told in different formats, and sometimes it's, you know, directly alluded as a Lizzie Borden story, sometimes it's it's not, sometimes it's a little bit more uh, of an understated and unimplied thing, and an implied thing, but is the tone of this movie going to be as a straightforward drama? Is it going to have, you know, a thriller, psycho, horror type of elements? I mean, how are you approaching the way that you would want to construct this story? I mean, if, if, what, what category would you put it in if uh, you were putting it up on, say, Netflix? It would be a murder mystery suspense. Okay. Um, I, again, going back to the whole Hitch- Hitchcock thing, it, 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 there's a lot of suspense factors in it. There's not a whole lot of... I mean, there is dialogue in it, but a lot of it is actually... It's what the characters do, not so much what they say that drives the story. It's definitely a suspense thriller. Um, it, it, it makes you think. It's not just you just sit there, stuff your face with popcorn, and at the end you kind of understood what you saw, or you, you liked it or you didn't like it. it this movie makes you think. It, it really draws you in, and that's what drew me in when I was, the night I was videotaping it. I was, you know, at the, at the point I was, I was an audience member and not so much working that night. So, yeah, definitely a suspense category. Well, we are talking with Jerry Orzel and Karen Paulson. They are the director and the writer of the forthcoming film, Defending Lizzie, which uh, actually does need your help to be able to raise the funds to come up here and film at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. If you want to see an accurate production that is filmed in the actual house, would be the first one to actually be filmed in the house, you can go to DefendingLizzie.com to find out more about that. And... I think that, again, people in this area are, are hungry for this. They want to see it told accurately and correctly. They want to see a Lizzie Borden that is, even if they feel like she might have been the one to do it and they, they don't agree with you know whoever ends up being the, the murderer in your film, they want to feel like she needs to be portrayed as a human being and not just as a, a cold-blooded killer and not, not as a horror movie character, which is the way that she's kind of viewed in these parts. They want to see somebody who... No matter what you feel she did or she didn't do it, there's a sympathy there. There's a reason why. There's a, uh, there's a reason why that she had to do this if she did, or there's a reason why she couldn't have done it if you feel that she didn't. And I, I think that that's what's been lost over the years is she's become very one-dimensional in the eyes of a lot of people. So that's the challenge I know that you will face as filmmakers and that the actors will, will face in portraying this, but the audience has to be willing to accept that too. The audience has to be willing to accept the fact that, Karen, you've created characters in this script that aren't going to be you know, the way they're used to seeing them portrayed. Is, is there any surprises uh, that you have brought into this that people might, you know, not really surprises, but little bits and pieces of the research that you found that the public might not generally be aware, kind of things that were lost to history? Well, the way you said about um, 
the empathy and sympathy towards Lizzie. That I see that also, and just exactly how you described it is what they're going to get, the different side of Lizzie. So that's one thing. And then there's characters definitely that have not been in other Lizzie movies or plays or anything. And uh, like I said, de- the um, Parallel Lives, that really gave me a good insight into what was happening before and after that time period. They had a leap year ball. So I put that in the movie. I thought that was really neat, and you'll be able to see that and how Emma wants to go to it. Just different things that I know haven't been touched on in other Lizzie stories. Is uh, is breakfast on the day in question in the movie? Is it rancid mutton stew? I think it would have to be. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know even I know even that's been under some some debate uh, from some people. But uh, I can tell you that that's the number one question I get asked from people when they talk to me about wanting to stay at the bed and breakfast. They're like, they don't serve rancid mutton stew, do they? I'm like, well, no, because then you would get sick and not come back. Why would they do that? The last person that served it ended up getting a, a hatchet to the head. So. <laughs> the, but that's the great part about that house is is it has become such a part of of folklore too. In addition to no matter how much how, no matter how accurate you want to tell the story, it's become an American folklore story. It's become part of our mythology, and it's a case that will never actually be solved. And and I know the kind of the conceit of the script is that it is a, a diary of Lizzie's that was found. Right, that that's kind of how this is told in almost like a flashback mode. Yes, it's, uh, you know, the hip bath collection, it was in, that's the artistic license that it was added to the hip bath collection. So is there, uh, with, with that in mind then, um, you, you know, have you found any materials that people might not be aware of? Because I, I know the original, um, the original testimony was locked up under, uh, the original uh, inquest was under lock and key in the Springfield lawyer's office. And to this day, they won't release it. They've said, no, attorney-client privilege continues even after death. We're not going to release it. And they've also come out and said, and also we've read it, and there's nothing really good in it. So it's not like we're going to find any mysterious documents, right, or, or you haven't found any, any new documents. And no, only the meatloaf recipe. But, but that isn't that's that's in the book though. That's in Parallel I, Lives. I know. I'm, I'm, I, I was there when they found it. If you found there, oh really? I was going to say if you found yeah, Lizzie's Casserla recipe in the archives when be. they found it, they came running down and said, "Oh look, look what we got!" <laughs> and they made a copy for me. It says uh, one pound, one pound, Daddy, one pound, Steppy. And then I'm making cannibal jokes, and my co-hosts are just making faces here. <laughs> So, so now uh, with the, with everything in place, I mean, w- you have the uh, the campaign going, and again, not that I'm trying to talk around it, but we're not really supposed to promote those campaigns on the air, so that's why I'm telling everybody to go to defendinglizzy.com to find out more about it. But uh, you have uh, there's about 40 days left to be able to raise the the total that you need to be able to come up here and film, and so this this is happening one way or another. But you really want to make sure that you can come up here and film. And uh, I'm sure that Leanne has been, you know, more than inviting and welcoming for this to come up. But there's a lot of costs associated with that: bringing the crews up here, bringing up all the things that you need, uh, all the technical aspects of everything, and just being able to spend the time up here that's needed. Uh, but if that does happen, uh, you know, hopefully you'll be able to kind of start an ambassadorship with the community right away. 
and, and get them on board in the promotion of this film. Uh, Jerry, I know that I've seen an interview with you on Faye's blog where you talked about putting this kind of out on the festival circuit. Is that is that the original plan? I mean, at least the, the initial plan? Yeah, yeah. Once we get her in the can and get it edited and do some, you know, I guess test screenings, and then we'll have a local premiere in Central Florida where the actors were located, and then I would, would go up to Fall River, do a Fall River premiere, and then hit the film festival circuit. Um, you know, the film festival circuit is probably the best way to get recognized have as for the story, for an actor, for a crew member, for their, their talent and their skills. It build, actually builds recognition for your project, the film. Um, if you get a couple of awards or a couple honorable mentions that help sell it. Um, I, you know, obviously we probably wouldn't get a theater release, but there's always video on demand, Netflix, um, self-distribution through Amazon or eBay. But we'll definitely hit the film festival circuit after a couple of private screenings, or not really private screenings, but various screenings in Central Florida and Fall River. Well, I mean, the model is definitely changing for film distribution. I mean, it's so much easier now to get things in the hands of the people and to get it in front of the eyes of the people that you don't always have to go that traditional route. Um, one thing that I'll ask you, at least from a technical standpoint and a bit of a suggestion, are you going to be filming in, in 4K? Uh, yes. We're shooting on a um, Canon C100 and uh, shooting 4K, and we're going to kind of grind it up a little bit, desaturate it. You know, the color correction. I want it to look kind of gritty, like it was almost shot like in maybe the, the 70s or 80s. Not not really bad, but kind of give it a, a, an older look. Right, not not 70s porn quality, though. We're talking like, yeah. I don't, I don't know what your audience is looking at. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, definitely want to immerse the viewer into not only the Victorian wardrobe and, and, and the, the surroundings also just give it that look. Just, it's, you know, just kind of an all-around adventure in the project. Well, I'll talk to you um, off-air about something about the 4K tie-in because there's a, a local... Uh, thing up here that might might help you out in some distribution. So, uh, but we'll, we can talk about cool. that off the air because I don't want to talk out of school here with anything. <laughs> so uh, now, Karen, I mean, and this this has got to be your dream come true as as originally a researcher and then a writer is this to be able to see this project come to light and see it put on film and and have it be in front of the eyes of other people. Uh, I mean, do you feel like by doing this, are you kind of the steward for this story? Are you kind of helping to? Um, further this and, and to bring to light the other side of this? Do you feel that sense of responsibility, or are you just trying to tell the best story that you can for Lizzie Borden? I, I do feel a sense of responsibility, and working with Jerry from the very beginning on this and casting and being part of every aspect. Uh, Jerry's the producer-director, but he still um, collaborates with me on everything. He, I, I feel very much involved, and... I'm I'm really happy with our our cast and crew, and I'm they they just really fit everything perfectly, and I just want to see this really happen, and and I want others to see it. That's that's the part I want to share this story. I want everyone else to get excited as I am. <laughs> well, I can tell you that I'm pretty excited. Hopefully, if you uh, okay. if you get to come up here and film. Uh, you know, I'm sure you'll have a busy, tight schedule, but hopefully we can meet up and maybe you can come uh, in studio and, you know, we can talk. And make a great extra for the DVD, you know, coming in and talking on the radio. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you, totally. I can't, I can't wait any longer. I'm going to be up north uh, about five <laughs> hours away, and I'm staying overnight. I'm coming up again end of September. I just, I'm too excited. Well, when was the last time that you were here? Excuse me? 
Well, when was the last time that you came to Fall River? Oh, about a year and a half ago. Okay, so you've seen all the changes they've made around the house. You know, there's a, there's a kind of a courthouse over there now, and it's changed a little bit. Uh, and, and that'll be, you know, that'll be a pretty good challenge to filming, but at least the Aaron Hernandez trial is over, you know, so you don't have to deal with that anymore. That was, uh, every day it was crazy over there with all the news crews and everything covering that. Um, it's, it's, nobody, nobody really picked up on that either. Like, oh, wait a minute, that's the site of one of the most, notorious murders in american history that's still unsolved and none of those news crews thought to go over there and kind of cover anything with that which i thought was uh, pretty amazing but <coughs> their loss all right well the film is called defending lizzie uh jerry orzel and karen polson are the ones involved in the production you can follow along on defending with all the updates and you can find out how you can help it be made as well so guys thank you for joining us definitely keep us up to date on uh, on the progress and and we can't wait to see it here uh, on in fall river and, and i know that we're going to be seeing you making it here in fall river i know people are going to help uh raise all those funds that you need to do so well, thanks for thank you support. all right and have a great night we'll talk to you soon and uh, we are going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, we will have time for the Week and Weird, so we'll get to that. And uh, we'll also take your thoughts as well. Maybe you have some comments about the Lizzie Borden case and, and you want to chime in with that here on the week of the 123rd anniversary. You can do so at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Back in a moment here on Spooky South Coast on the new 1420 WBSM. <laughs> Back to Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg, along with Stephanie Burke and Lauren Allison. And we are uh, just about nine minutes left in the show. So if anybody does want to call in with any Lizzie thoughts, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. But, I, I mean, I do think that, and I tried, you know, as you could tell, I tried to get them to tell us who they think it was that committed the murders. But there's a lot of different theories out there, and some of them make a lot of sense, some of them don't. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of Occam's razor for a lot of people. The simplest explanation is probably the right one. And to a lot of people, Lizzie is the simplest explanation. But I'll be interested in seeing how the film comes out. Because I like to nitpick those Lizzie productions, too. You well, know? of course, because we spend so much time there and it's local history. So, of course, we delve a little bit deeper in than most people do. Um, and I think, like, our resources around this area are a little bit better than living in a different state. Um, I'm curious myself. I mean, I've been involved in television productions that were filmed in the house. Yes. So I know that it can be done. Uh, and I know that it can be... I mean, you could easily walk in there right now with a camera and put on a movie that takes place in 1892. There'd be very little things that you would have to do right. anything to adjust. Uh, you know, maybe just make sure you don't catch, like, the alarm panel on the wall or, or don't turn on the electric light. But other than that, you know, the, the house could be exactly like it was. Uh, and so I think that that would be as they were saying, the easiest way to just come in and and mm-hmm. get the job done. They're looking at needing 16 days in the house, which is, you know, okay. about what you need to film, a, uh, to film a movie. And it would just make their job so much easier and make it so much more historically accurate right? Uh, if they can do that. Now, the advantage being, too, that, I mean, looking at it from our perspective, mm-hmm. you know, from the paranormal side of things, how much would you love to be able to get uh, into that house, you know, at night after they're done filming? Oh, yeah. Like, I think that would just be amazing because, like, they're going in there, they're stirring everything up, they're talking about everything historically from that perspective, and then we go in there and 
any agitated ghosts, we can kind of document. So. It would be interesting, that's for sure. I'd like to see that. <laughs> maybe we can get them to do some. Uh, maybe we can get them to do some paranormal investigating while they're up here. Hmm, right. Maybe. You never know. I mean, if you're serious, see, Faye Musselman is a perfect example because she's somebody who is uh, very involved in the Borden story mm-hmm. from a scholarly perspective. She collects Borden memorabilia. She's read everything. She studies everything. And she never really got involved in the paranormal stuff until she started hanging out with Spooky South Coast. And then we started telling her, you know, some of the ghostly experiences people have had there. And then she becomes more open to it. And then things happen. So it's like, you know. Isn't that always the way the story goes? Kind of. So, uh, you know, I think that there's certainly, uh, it's certainly worth pursuing. Even if it's not something that you want to include in your story, it's still something that you should experience while you're going to be there. So we'll talk to them about all that. It is part of the story. It, it is now. I mean, I don't think for the story they're trying to tell, I don't think they need to include it. But I think that people need to still be aware of it if it's part of, you know, it's going to be part of the ongoing tale of Lizzie Borden. So um, we have uh, about six minutes left in the show. Lauren, do you want to get a little weird? Are you ready? I'm ready to get a little weird. All right, let's well, do this. Wait, before we what? get weird, we have to send out a shout-out. We have a shout-out? We have a shout-out. All right, Did you see it? it? I'm sure I did and just forgot. We have, this is your your job here is to be the shout out person. But I haven't been here. So it, I know we took last week off because of legend trips. But we do have a shout out from Leon from the Netherlands. Did oh, you right. get to see yes, that? Yes, I did, yes. I think it's awesome that he's watching from where he is. Um Hi Leon. And we hope that we hear from more people outside of the U.S. at least, because we know we have a lot of viewers that are outside the U.S. So please, if you guys are out there, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, if you're on Periscope, if you're on anything really, social media, or just email us at SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com and let us know who you are, where you're listening from, even if you're local. We love to hear from our fans. And we've gotten a few uh, on Twitter as well. Uh, I want to say hi to Denise, who was uh, telling us that she was listening. Uh, there was somebody else that's been listening on, on Twitter, too, but I don't see the tweet anymore. I wonder if they deleted it. They're like, yeah, I don't want people to know that I listen to that show. <laughs> but uh, there was somebody that had um They're that not had as cool it. as I thought they were. And I want to shout out to Betty, who I know listens live uh, out there in, in Oregon, as they say, not Oregon, Oregon. Uh, she that's listens funny. out there. And uh, also want to say hi to a podcast listener, but somebody who uh, I was talking to earlier today, uh, Amanda Rose. So thank you for listening on podcast, even though you're too busy on Saturday nights to listen live, but that's okay. That's right. We have a lot of listeners that tune in, especially on their morning drive to work the next day. Yes. It's amazing to me how many people wait to listen. Frank Grace is one of those. He listens on the way to work. They're like, no, I can't listen live because then what am I going to listen to when I go to work? (laughs) So, and speaking of which, if you're not listening, you can join Art Bell's Time Travelers for the Dark Matter Radio Network and get those downloads instantaneously. Uh, you can be able to download them and listen to them even if you can't listen to them at night. But man, that show has been going great. I'm hoping awesome. that uh, we can maybe do a crossover at some point. That'd be cool. All right. Well, we have a few minutes left. Let's get some weirdness going. And uh, here's Lauren with the Weekend Weird. More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today. What's so wonderful? Weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. The Week in Weird. First of all, before we get into The Week in Weird, I just want to say cat gifts are the most funniest thing. You have to admit that. Cat gifts? Cat gifts. Anything that a cat's doing that they make a gif out of? Of course. 
catch love awesome. them. They're so awesome. Gifts are the new memes. All right, we have about three minutes, Lauren. Give us uh, give us some quick stories here. Okay. Well, this one comes from Huff Post, Huffington Post. For those that didn't know that, <laughs> I'm sure everybody knows that. <laughs> um, okay, so my first story, well, my only story really is. Um, um, is a thirsty elephant drinks toilet water. I know that. Well, we've, we've all been there, right? <laughs> no. I'm sorry, but no. My, um, my dog does. My dog does not and will never. Well, my cat does, but I found this really strange that an elephant was doing this because it's just a big animal. How is it, like, I getting in the toilet? Anyways, it says, um, you get thirsty eating all those peanuts. An elephant in Botswana showed it had a lot in common with the average American canine when it started sucking up a trunk full of water from a toilet at the Elephant Sands Lounge. There's a water hole nearby, but the water is salty, so the more particular um, pachyderms prefer the taste of toilet water. Ugh. Barcraft TV reports this. Even though elephants have the right of way at the lodge, some tourists are still shocked when the animals try to grab a drink when people are washing their hair in the shower, according to the Daily Mail. Despite the invasion of privacy, visitors like Karina Blofeld, who took the videos, don't see an elephant drinking their toilet water as a crappy experience. It's one of the best experiences you can ask for in the wild and as close to nature as you ever likely to get, she told Craft TV. Well, listen, you know, I've seen the way that elephants live, and I've seen kind of the way that they take care of themselves, and if drinking toilet water is the worst thing that happens to them, it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, I don't know if you've seen some of the other stuff they do with those trunks. That is uh, true, but I just thought that it was kind of funny that, like, the picture is, you know, the elephant's trunk coming over the wall and... You know, like a tornado. Well, now that we've mentioned elephants here on WBSM, that means that there will be a renewed, invigorated campaign to send Emily and Ruth down to an, Emily, uh, an elephant oh, sanctuary. That's been going on uh. yeah, so now that we mentioned elephants, those emails are coming. Uh, when speaking of emails, you can email us, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. You can find us on Twitter at SpookySC. You can find our podcasts wherever podcasts are found. Uh, one of, uh, there was a new podcast service that just came out this week already carrying Spooky South Coast. Awesome. It's, uh, it's amazing that, you know, wherever you can get them, the Stitcher app, wherever you can find them, of course, rebroadcast now. Tuesday afternoons, I believe, are our new time slot on the Dark Matter Radio Network. So you can catch us there as well, the home of Art Bell's Midnight in the Desert. Uh, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week with another show. For Stephanie, for Lauren, for Matt, for Matt, I'm Tim. We want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>